0: Thanks for pressing play. And if you're a longtime listener, welcome back to the conversation. And if you're new, this is Christopher Lockett, Follow your different. We are the Real Dialogue Podcast, or some people call us an oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, most of us are interested in what is happening in the electric energy revolution. And there's no doubt it's a revolution. And many of us want to understand how this different future that is being kind of unveiled in front of us will impact ourselves, our families, our communities, our work, and our world. But as you know, there is much partisan misinformation and disinformation about renewable energy. It's hard to really get our arms around this critical topic. Our guest today is a number one best-selling author named Bill Nussi. And Bill's book, Freeing Energy, is a fact-based, clear-eyed look at how innovators are using what he calls a local approach to solar to develop whole new categories. What you're about to discover is how learnings from the information technology and entrepreneurship world are now driving breakthroughs in energy and in specific solar energy. You see, Bill is a former tech entrepreneur, CEO, and now venture capitalist focused on new energy categories. And we go right at some of the myths about solar and the trillions in new category potential that Bill sees for entrepreneurs and investors in solar. He also argues that solar is driving innovation and category creation in ways that are transforming the cost and availability. Of electricity around the world. Also pay special attention to the part of our conversation where I surprise Bill with a shared connection we have from long ago. By the end of this discussion you'll learn how the electric future is going to change our lives and the world. Now speaking of things that change the world my friends at Lomi are the makers of the most legendary new kitchen appliance in a decade. You see, Lomi is the world's first smart home composter, and she makes food waste a thing of the past. Uh, we, we call ours she, I don't know. Um, we, we talk about our Lomi in our house like, um, like Lomi's a person. And uh, because she sort of becomes a person in your life that you interact with a couple times a day, because Lomi turns waste into some of the most nutrient-dense magic dirt in the world in just a few hours. Unlike traditional composting that takes months, we have a composter in our garden and are very used to using it. And if you've ever composted, you know it takes a long time and it's icky, <laughs> to put it best. And um, if you think dragging wet, dripping, disgusting bags of food out to your garbage bin is also gross and you want to transform your kitchen from a waste-creating, environment-hurting dumpster into a magic dirt factory, visit L-O-M-I That's Lomi now. Hey-ho, let's go. Well, Bill, welcome.
1: Thank you. Really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Me too. I have been looking forward to this this conversation since... uh, our friend Tom introduced us. Um, I want to thank you right off the top for writing this book.
1: Oh, 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 got the book there. Oh, yeah. You have made my afternoon, sir.
0: Uh, you know, funny thing. I mean, I know you're a podcaster, but uh, funny thing is most podcast hosts this is going to make me sound terrible. But let me say it this way. Some podcast hosts are not that smart. And many of them don't read the fucking book of their guests. And, I mean, I can't tell you I read every word in this book, but, I mean, I gave it a good going over, and I got notes. And Because I think if we're going to have you on, you've written an incredibly important book on a topic that is seminal for our our world. Thank you. If I'm going to have you on, at least I'm going to do some fucking homework. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Wow. Maybe let me just jump in. Um, I was having this conversation with an incredible... I consider him a Yoda entrepreneur um, about a week ago, and we were talking about this topic. I knew you were coming on. I was digging into your work. So maybe just let's jump into something weird that just happened uh, in the recent past here in California. We had a situation, I'm sure you're well aware, where in about a week or a week and a half period, Governor Gavin Newsom comes out and says, by 2035, we're going to make the purchase of new ICE cars in California illegal. And in, a, in that same week, roughly, there's a massive heat wave that comes through California. And only days after making said pronouncement, this same governor comes out and says, um, please don't use electricity during the day. And if you have EVs, charge them at night. So, look, you don't have to have Einstein's IQ to go, well, wait a minute. EVs are the future. We're all supposed to buy EVs. And you're going to outlaw ICE cars. And days later, less than double-digit days later, you say you can't charge these EVs because our infrastructure in California is a joke. My name for PG&E here, I call them PG&Evil. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, they're evil bastards. Um, <laughs> we talk about that if you want. And so, so here we sit in a situation where... Um, the world has seemed to have made a decision. We're going solar. We're going electric. We're, we're going to rely on batteries, areas that you're an expert in, which all sounds very interesting and powerful. And I'm, I'm, I'm open minded to all of these things, by the way. Um, I want to save the planet as much as I think anybody else does. And yet uh, we have this ironic, what I would even call idiotic set of statements from a, uh, in my opinion, a posturing governor trying to get reelected. <laughs> so how do I rationalize this stuff, Bill?
1: Oh, man, you know we are running on this century-old architecture, this rickety, outdated uh, thing called the grid. And you know, I love to tell the story about just how outdated the grid is. So I, I imagine I was like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure and I would have a time machine and I would go back. I actually literally think about this, man. And I would go back and I would talk to, uh, I would go get the Wright brothers and I'd bring them forward to 2022. And I'd say from a hundred years ago, Hey, let me show you an F 35. Let me take you for a ride on a 747, And they would be amazed at where their invention has gone. Right. Imagine if you went back to Alexander Graham Bell and you brought him forward to 2022, a hundred years later, and you said, look at this little device in my hand, this iPhone, this Android phone. I can t- type in 10 numbers and reach 7 billion people instantaneously across the entire planet. I can access the sum total of all human knowledge. Look what your invention has wrought. And he would be reasonably proud and impressed. Now, if I were to go back to Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, George Westinghouse, Sam Ensell any of the fathers of the, or- of the original grid 100 years ago, and bring them forward, they would look around and say, WTF? Like This is the exact same system. Wait, You're still running 60 hertz AC across old analog transformers. How come every other part of the industry has, every other part of technology has been completely changed and this is the same? And it's because of the business model that that they launched, this regulated monopoly, and it results in just really uh, bad thinking, short-term thinking. And that's why California's grid and Puerto Rico's grid and others, Texas has its own issues, but they are kind of famously broken. Because the business model uh, is out of date, and it means that the technologies, these amazing technologies that are available, um, are simply not put to use because it's so risk averse, it's so capital constrained, uh, and that's what's changing. And that's really what my book Free Energy is about. But uh, you know, and to answer your question directly, um, the grid has plenty of capacity in California, as broken as it is, uh, but truly. During the five o'clock in the afternoon time frame, you know everyone turn, comes home from work and they turn on their televisions and stoves and air conditioners or heaters or whatever, and the grid gets kind of busy. So, and then EV charging makes it worse. But if you just push off the EV charging for a few hours, there's plenty plenty of capacity in the grid. Uh, it's really the same thing as saying your highways get super crowded. Yours are crazy out there in the West Coast, and uh, you know, so if you want to avoid the highway traffic, just leave at ten o'clock in the morning instead of eight thirty. Um, it's really as simple as that. And people are used to driving or using the grid whenever they want. So it's a bit of a behavior change, but the grid can handle all the EVs we want to put on it. We just have to be just a teeny weeny bit smarter about the three or four days of the year where it's getting crowded.
0: So translation... The grid in California can handle it. We just can't all charge our Teslas. And I, I would probably want it, the new Ford Mustang, but whatever it is, whatever EV you want, just don't charge them in the middle of the day when everyone else is charging them.
1: Don't charge them at five o'clock hmm. uh, when everyone gets home. That's the biggest problem. And that's solar's done with its highest. Uh, the sun's going down. It's not as bright. So the solar panels aren't putting out all the power. Uh, and this will be a non-issue in in 10 years as batteries continue to plummet in price. And they're going to be, uh, everywhere, but for this very short window, there's a couple of days a year you need to be mindful of this stuff.
0: Yeah. Good. Thank you for that. That makes me feel a little better. <laughs> Actually, a lot better.
1: Well, your grid's still a mess, just for the record. Yeah. Uh, well, it's still a mess.
0: You mean when we have a government-controlled monopoly things get fucked up? Is that what you're trying to tell me?
1: Well, here's the funny thing. I, I can only think of, you tell me, I can only think of three industries left in the United States from dozens and dozens over the last century that are government-regulated monopolies, Right. You have alcohol, gambling, and electric
0: utilities.
1: Those are the only three I know of.
0: Oh, and and internet service providers. To some degree. I don't have any any choice where I live. Not if I want high-powered shit. If I want shit, if I want terrible connection time, I can go to a local provider. But if I want high-powered internet connection, I have to do business with uh, Comcast. And as you know, United Airlines and Comcast are in a death battle to see who can be the most Hated company in the United States of America. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, let me go to some of the. So in the book, the first part I read was the your whole section, kind of plus or minus midway through here. I think you called it the myths. Yes. Um, I went straight to there. Interesting. And- I went there for a couple reasons. Um, number one, you and I share a background in the technology industry. I have a surprise for you about that coming. We have, we're connected in a way that I don't think you might realize, but okay. we'll get to that in a minute. Um, um, but as somebody who's been in the technology industry for 35 years, we get taught to be systems thinkers on the development side. And I'm not a developer, but I'm not ignorant of how products get built. And on the business, and particularly in this area of category design, um, there's this whole focus on, uh, ecosystems as well. So how all of this is going to work together and an ecosystem of providers to bring technology to the world. So, so I guess my point is many of us in the tech business, think about ecosystems, systems thinking the complete picture. And when I talk to particularly some of my Republican friends, um, and I'm a radical independent, which means everybody hates me, but, um,
1: uh, I'm there with your brother. <laughs>
0: You know, in this coming election, I will be voting Republican and Democrat, as I did in the last election. but wow, you- that is cutting edge, man I mean <laughs> do they uh, wow that 's good for, good for
1: you I imagine that good for you there 's hope
0: well, i hope there's hope um, i think I think stupidity is stupid, and I think stupid scales today in a way that it never has before, but we could do a whole other conversation with that, so my Republican friends bring up a whole bunch of issues that seem Uh, solid to me. And you address some of them in the myths part, which I deeply, deeply appreciate. Um, And so if you think about this from an ecosystem perspective, and you look at all of the materials, uh, natural resources that are required for us to continue moving down this electric path, um, obviously there's big concerns about copper and lithium and so forth and so on. And, And one of the concerns I think you address incredibly, which is the availability of those things. And I'd like you to get into that. But maybe before we get into that, you know, lithium mining is not exactly great for the environment. And, and you may know better than I do, but from an from a environmental ROI perspective, it takes many years for um, a Tesla to become um, carbon neutral, right? Because of the amount of carbon it takes to build these things. So there, my point is there's a lot of discussion around how dirty it is to create clean technology. And until I read your book, I really haven't experienced very many people who have tried to take a fact-based, systems-thinking-based approach to describing the realities of this in a way that didn't seem like it had a political agenda or an agenda for one part of the industry or a different part of the industry or so forth. And I really appreciate you trying to walk a very fact-based line, Bill. I think you've done a wonderful job. And so help me understand, are we creating a, a new environmental problem around all of the uh, natural resources that are going to be required and and the impact of the environment to acquire those resources, to build this new future. And so are we setting ourselves up for a disaster down the road here? And if we're not, let's talk about why that's not the case.
1: Boy, there are so many ways to go at that. There's so much mythology and generalism hand-waving that basically – the amount of environmental damage, because anything you do, anything we do, it's going to have some effect on the environment. So we want to be as smart and as limited as we can be. But the when we're generating energy or storing it in batteries with lithium, the amount of environmental damage is relatively tiny compared to any other energy system. So you know, was it Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government except for every other kind. And uh, you know, so lithium and solar and the other other raw materials, silver and copper, these are the worst things we could possibly do to power our planet, except for everything else we do today, which is fossil fuels and nuclear, which are far more damaging. So by comparison, they are quite a bit less damaging. And there's lots of numbers we could get into, but there, it's, a, it's several orders of magnitude different. But there's another far more important point to compare the damage that people miss. And this is one of the key points in, in, in the book and on my podcast is that solar and batteries are technologies, they're not fuels. And this is a really big freaking point. And to be clear, wind is not a technology. It has technologies in it, but it's a giant machine. Geothermal, I love it, I love wind, but these are giant machines. The thing when I say it's a technology, what I mean is that you can make it in the factory. Uh, you can make it with automated robots. You can make 1,000, thousand, a th- a ten. 10,000, a million, 10 million of these things just flying off assembly lines. And so once upon a time, uh, you could go back and solar panels, uh, you could accurately say that the CO2 generated from the coal that was burned in China to make a solar panel was only slightly better than the CO2 saved when the solar panel operated. Uh, But but guess what? It's a technology. The energy required to make a solar panel has plummeted. Uh, Funny thing is people ask the solar panel manufacturers, hey, can you make this less CO2 intensive? And they're like, well, sure, might be a one or 2% more money, but sure. And, and they are. So now you have certified zero, net zero carbon dioxide emission solar panels. And, and so, you know, it's like when, back when I was in a business school and we had a professor, one of my favorite classes, we looked at the history of uh, business and, and he made the case at the time that, You know, there's this new thing called digital photography. I don't want to date myself here, but this new thing called digital photography and, you know, there were different cameras everywhere. It's okay, you're in a safe
0: place to be your age.
1: (laughs) 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 And and so he's like, you know, of course, digital photography will never overtake uh, film photography because the resolution, the chemistry of film is so high. There's just no way. And of course, my iPhone 13 can run circles around the finest film camera today.
0: And and by the way, I just got an email this morning from Apple telling me I qualify for the whatever, whatever. and I can upgrade to the 14. So are you surprised when Apple
1: sends you something and said there's a new phone that's so much better than the last one? Do you say, how did they do that? That's never happened before. Do you have that
0: reaction? No. No. And interestingly, my wife, uh, Carrie, was at the Apple store, store recently, and she was asking one of the geniuses, Uh, you know, what's the real difference here? And um, effectively the genius said, well, the real difference is the camera. And so she shared that with me and I said, well, so are you going to upgrade? And she said, yeah, I want to have the best possible camera. I love taking photos.
1: Me too. But, but you weren't surprised if you had an iPhone 10 and they say the 14 has all these new features, it's more memory, it's faster. That doesn't surprise you. But yet in the energy industry, People are const. they just cannot plan. Even the biggest advocates of solar and batteries struggle to think through the reality that these things are going to get cheaper. They're going to get better. They're going to last longer. But yet nothing we do in policy or otherwise actually takes into account the same thing we take for granted in our iPhones. It's going to get better and cheaper every year.
0: Let me ask you about this. I think in our industry, you have to understand Moore's law and Metcalfe's law in the tech industry. And if you don't, you don't know what the fuck's going on.
1: Hallelujah, brother.
0: Yeah. And and those things are as relevant today as ever. And, you know, maybe the chips aren't doubling as fast or whatever. But the principles of those ideas that the technology doubles, uh, the chip speed doubles every couple of years and the value of a network increases exponentially with every new node on that network. Once you understand these things, you understand exactly what you just said. And I moved to Tahoe in 2006, 2007. And um, a friend of mine started what I think at the time was the first uh, franchise solar installer in the country. Hmm. And he saw an opportunity and he saw all these roofers out there looking for more work. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. And so I became the first person in Truckee to have solar installed on his house. And we had a long wow. conversation. This was, would have been 2007, maybe eight. And I remember having a long discussion about, you know, the snow loads and how this was going to work. And as a side note, you know, of course, we get bombed with snow in Tahoe. It's not like we get like six feet in a day when it goes <laughs> off, right? And it's amazing. And I'll never forget, Bill, the first time this happened. So we get this big snowstorm. Just I don't know how many feet of snow piled up on top of the house. And then, of course, as it does in Tahoe, things warm up. And so I get home from skiing and it's maybe two o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's out and so forth and so on. And all of a sudden I hear a noise that it goes. <laughs> and I, I, I did this and I, I literally thought, okay, the fucking aliens just landed on my house. And what it was, was as the snow melted the solar panels acted like a speedway (laughs) to the snow load. And it all went flying off the side of the house at rapid speed and scared the shit out of us. (laughs) Anyway, um, the point being, one of the reasons I wanted to do that back then was exactly this. I wanted to be his first customer in Tahoe. I wanted to be on the leading edge. I knew I was paying a stupid amount of money to do it. I knew the ROI wasn't there. And, and I thought, You know, if not me, then who and we got to get this party started and I want to vote with my dollars and away we go. I love it. I love it.
1: I love hearing that story.
0: Well, and I would imagine that the panels that I put on the house in Tahoe in 2007 or 8 are materially different than what I would do if I was putting new panels on my house today. Oh, my
1: goodness. (laughs) You know, which is the iPhone 14 better than the iPhone 7.
0: And that's because the principles of Metcalf's law and Moore's law are at play. And of course, yes. as the market gets bigger, economies of scale go to work, costs come, et cetera. But so why is it people in the industry, in the tr- legacy industry, don't understand some of these key principles?
1: Because they've been dealing with fuels and fuels don't, don't change this way. You know, you can – fuels get more expensive, less expensive. You know, com- countries go to war, as we're seeing right now, fuel gets more expensive – And so they have entire groups of oil and gas and electricity companies have groups of geniuses, PhDs, hedging and planning for energy costs because that's the only variable they have. In the history of that industry, technology has never changed the economics, Uh, something you and I from the tech space take for granted. But it's an entirely new idea after a century. And because in the electricity space, it's a regulated monopoly, they really don't have to worry about it. They haven't at least – until very recently uh, because if they didn't if they weren't interested in the technology there was no impetus It wasn't like uh, you were going to call them up as a customer actually they don't call you a customer they call you a rate
0: payer but is that to call great
1: them, uh, yeah it shows it shows how they Only how their a mind fucked works. up
0: industry would call you a rate payer
1: well your your opinion for most not all but most utilities in the united states doesn't really matter what matters is the public utility commissions and there's five or seven people on it those are the customers of electric utilities those are the ones they need to please those are the ones they go out of the way uh to meet the needs of and answer their questions and uh that's that industry has remained the same unchanged for over a century we've had public utility commissions since the you know 30s of 1930s and and that's And there really hasn't been anything that could change it because for the longest time this is kind of cool for the longest time if we wanted energy whether it was oil or gas or electricity the the economies of scale were king so if i want more cheaper electricity i had to make a bigger refiner a a bigger power plant or i wanted cheaper oil i had to make a bigger refinery and and this these were giant numbers billions of dollars and governments and you know multinational corporations loved this stuff uh, and that's the entire history of energy. What's changed for the first time, it's not just that solar and batteries are technologies, which they are, and that's unique, but they also can be small. You know, you can see on my screen over here, I've got a little um, little solar light from Africa, Right. This has got a battery in it, it's got a tiny little solar cell on it. Those are the same components that are powering parts of California right now at a global scale, same components. You can run them for a dollar, you can run them for a billion dollars. They they work at every scale and there's never been an energy system like that in history, except for burning wood. That was the only other time we had something like this. No economies of scale needed for innovation, no economies of scale needed to provide low cost service to people.
0: Well, and it's, it's it's fun how it shows up in in, And I love this focus on local. I had so many unlocks reading your book. I don't want to get to that. But on the local level, as it relates to this, um, our community has uh, over the last, I don't know, year or two, maybe three, um, gotten very busy at installing these super protective um, pedestrian walkways. Hmm. Uh, And so instead of just having a walkway with a sign, uh, we now have um, the, the pedestrian presses a button when they go to the crosswalk and all these lights start flashing. Well, first <laughs> of all, the lights are LED lights, so they're really bright. So there's you, you'd have to be some kind of moron not to know that something was up if you're driving. And then, of course, if you look closely at these things that have these incredible LED lights on it that make the, the road much safer for pedestrians, they're powered by these little panels. And they require, very, and I know enough about solar panels and enough about LED lights to know that the maintenance and the longevity of these technologies is materially different than what we had before. And so now we have a situation where this technology is cost effective that, you know, relatively, let me just say, not forward leaning community leaders can get on board with this stuff. It's not that expensive. And solar and LED lights are saving lives on the streets of our community.
1: And they're doing it across the world. I mean, I just interviewed for my podcast, Jacqueline Novogratz, uh, who runs this amazing uh, pioneering social impact fund called Acumen out of New York. And they don't get the credit, and I'm glad we could share it on the podcast. They put the original money into about, I think, 20 of the pioneering solar battery uh, uh, lantern companies in Africa. And their companies have provided electric light, affordable, cheap, safe electric light for two, I think it's for a hundred million people in Africa. And this is a small fund, you know, a hundred million. And they put in a couple million and all these, these companies that are big names in Africa, but most people in the U S wouldn't have heard of them. But this tiny little engine, these little startups have grown to a billion dollar industry selling these little lanterns. And it has changed the lives of people in a profound way. And the cool thing is that this solar and batteries are like Lego bricks. You can put them together any way you like, put a few more of them together. And all of a sudden in Africa, you have a television, Uh, you have a refrigerator where you can keep medicine and food. Um, You can have uh, off-grid irrigation. So all of a sudden you don't have to just grow food twice a year during the rainy season. You can grow it year round Uh, and you bring it all the way out to the United States. You've got safe pedestrian walkways. You've got parking meters that are powered by solar. Um, You've got, uh, you w- look down in uh, Puerto Rico, right? Back in when Maria, Hurricane Maria hit, the island was, was it was done, right? Um, 3,000 people died, not because of the hurricane, but because of the aftermath of nine months of no electricity. But after Ian hit, the grid did go down for a while, but there were tens of thousands of homes, uh, healthcare centers, emergency centers that remained lit and operational with lights and communications and cell phone charging uh because in the last five years they have added these these whatever you want to call microgrid solar plus battery uh, and this and, and then florida j- just was on uh 60 minutes there's this community in florida called babcock ranch it's a well-to-do it's the highest level example of where the wealthy part of the world can exist so ian comes by with 15 miles away uh the hurricane blew by 15 miles away right near fort myers um everywhere around it's devastated the grid's gone Babcock Ranch, right in the middle of it, power stays on, Uh, houses are intact, 700,000 solar panels powering it. Not a single one blew away because they built them to withstand hurricanes. This stuff is not hard, man. It is not hard. You just have to realize that this isn't political. This is about saving money. It's about creating resilience. It'll help the wealthiest people down there in Babcock Ranch. It'll help the poorest people in East Africa living in a mud hut. The same technology, man, that's why I got into this, because it's a single solution that that people just don't appreciate uh, that's going to change. It's in the process of changing the world, even if people don't see it.
0: Thank you for that. One of the things I wonder about in this regard, the distinction between the energy industry and the tech industry, particularly people in the entrepreneurial side of the tech industry, where you and I have lived the vast majority of our professional lives, or at least in my case, my whole life. When you take a big step back and you say, okay, what are we really doing? One of the things that we're doing is we're creating value where no value existed before. And part of how we do that is by creating abundance. Hmm. Like and, and the history of humanity shows that when humans have a scarcity mindset, they kill each other. <laughs> When human beings have an abundance mindset, that is to say, we say, hmm, we have X problem. What if we work together on that problem? We create abundance. We create value where no value had been created before. As I'm reading your work, I'm thinking to myself, oh, is what's going on here? We've had an entire run of energy, be it fossil fuels or the current, electrical paradigm where what you're dealing with is there's a scarce, scarce resource called this energy. And, and so I'm trying to optimize that and I'm fighting over it and, and, and so forth and so on versus, Hey, wait a minute. Um, There's this thing in this sky. If guys who have this skin tone that you and I have hang out in it for 15, 20 minutes, we're probably going to need a lot of eczema or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's pretty fucking powerful and, if, and, and it's radically abundant. And so if we take a radically abundant energy source and figure out how to make it work, we can create energy abundance. And if you're in the business of managing and fighting over scarcity, it's hard to see an opportunity to create radical, unbounded exponential abundance. I like but that. I, but I say that like a question, Bill.
1: One of the hot topics in the clean energy space is nuclear, and uh, a lot of people, including Elon Musk, have famously pointed out that that they have a, a really cool solution for nuclear. It's not even nuclear fission, it's nuclear fusion, uh, and it's uh, it's been running really well for the last long time, and it's, uh, it's located far enough away that we don't have to worry, worry about radiation, et cetera. It's called the sun, uh, and we're pretty much sure that it'll be running for a few billion years, and it won't run out. And it produces, as I'm sure you've heard, the stats that we have uh, the sun hit the sun produces or sends more energy to the Earth every two or three hours than the entire planet consumes across all forms of energy each year. So the the fact is that we've got we, we've got the solution. Um, it's abundant in a massive degree. The and it's it's abundant in Africa. It's a, abundant in Germany. It's abundant everywhere. Uh, so we just have to change. Not
0: so much in Seattle and Vancouver, but you know, whatever,
1: (laughs) you know what, you could still do it there. You just need more solar panels. I'm just being facetious, uh, but yeah, you're right. And so, and and there's a big issue though, because a lot, a very large portion of maybe the largest portion of the, the political power structure, the economic power structure in the world is because Energy is one of the most important commodities that drives every bit of our life. And there's a very small number of people and organizations that control it. I don't mean to sound like some kind of uh, the, the, nothing sort of innately evil here, but this is they just, hey, listen, if you control oil companies, it's a pretty good place to – good job if you can get it, right? And, and what solar does with the help of batteries is it completely democratizes energy. And I've had some wonderful existential debates with people. You know, if you go out 20 years and, and where I sit, it's inevitable that the, you know, the, the, the there will be solar will have won the race. Uh, everyone knows we'll be moving towards solar and battery for, to power our world. And so every country um, is going to be on equal footing. That's going to generate all the energy that it needs. Every state will have all the energy that it needs. They'll have all the energy to drive their cars, to heat their buildings, to cool their buildings, to manufacture their products. Everyone will have all they need. And the question is, when that happens, and I don't think that's utopian at all. We could we could pressure test it, and I think I could convince you. But regardless, the existential question: when that happens, is that going to create the chance for this the the mindset you talked about, where we get together and we, you know, we get along, or is it actually going to make us sit in our silos even more because we don't have to cross over oceans and make nice with people we don't like anymore, like the oil industry forces us to do. I'm not sure whether the world's better or worse, but I can tell you it's going to be very, very different. And I hope the philosophers and properly-minded politicians can figure this out for us.
0: Well, and so maybe let's go here. Here's another big aha I'm having as I consume your work. So if you look at the more, most recent kind of uh, history of the computer industry, call it the last plus or minus 50 years, you know, what have we witnessed? At the highest level, we witnessed the creation of a mainframe computer, this giant centralized thing uh, that had, you know, the, had all the controls and it was very hard to access and, and so forth and so on. And then uh, we have the PC and then ultimately the Internet and today the cloud and the Internet of Things and, and so forth. And so what we've had here is a shift from radically centralized computing that's very hard to use and very scarce resource to a radically decentralized um, compute paradigm with the cloud and mobile computing and such. As a side note, one of my cocktail party uh, conversations I always like to have with people is I like to say, okay, name me something that will not be connected to the internet. I like that. (laughs) No, it's really hard. It's, uh, you can come up with a few, but it's really hard. Um, And so, as I'm reading your book and you're unlocking for my thinking this local paradigm that what we're moving to what you just said means that the panels that are on my house now uh, we built our house ten years ago, so they're ten year old panels um I'm generating my own power I have you know except for the fluctuations in in in, in uh not being able to store it because I don't have batteries yet um I'm basically off the grid um and so if we are as individuals, if we as businesses are able to generate all our own electricity, is is, is it a similar analogy here, Bill, that we're moving from a centralized, control, hard to use, radically expensive uh, paradigm to a whole new model that is radically local and that we as individuals, we as homeowners, we as business owners, we as community leaders can generate our energy here and we don't, we're not beholden to on PG and evil or anyone else.
1: I think that's absolutely correct. And, and and listen, we still will want a grid. This was one of the questions I worked on as I was researching the book. We want a grid because we want to be able to trade electricity. We want the grid for the same reason we like eBay and Etsy. Uh, it's there's, I might have more panels than you do, or you might have more batteries, or your Ford 150 might be more charged than mine, so I'm gonna charge my car from your, there's a million options, right? But we need a grid. Um, the grid is a primary source of electricity. That's going away. You're already there. I'm already there. Uh, And so that world is coming fast. But the part that I really stressed and the reason that I wrote the book wasn't just this shift towards decentralized energy storage. The, The change that's happening that gets me really excited. It's kind of my personal mission, actually, is that All of a sudden, for the first time in energy history, I mean, all the way back to when we were burning wood, people can innovate in their garages, right? If you and I want to invent a new way, a new natural gas turbine or a new nuclear power, which everyone you read about this, all these new ideas for nuclear power, well, you better have a cool billion ready to spend. You better have a team of lobbyists uh, to go pitch that, and you better have 10 to 20 to 30 year patience. And and, hey, listen, if they're going to invent a better way to do nuclear, more power to them. Right, But you and I, the two of us with 2,000 bucks can sit in your garage and invent shit that no one's thought of before. And you and I is going to be times 10,000 and 100,000 and a million people are going to be inventing new shit in their garage, in their basements, and in their college labs uh, after hours around the kitchen table. We're going to see a rush of innovation uh, and energy that was never possible before. And it will change the face of how we generate and consume energy. So decentralization is just the first tiny step. We are—we haven't even gotten to the Steve Jobs and Wozniak and the garage age yet. We're yes. just barely there. And think of what happened, and then also think about the paradigm of the shift away from a regulated monopoly. Think AT and T. We're old enough to remember when you know you had to rent the telephone from AT and T, and then even then you couldn't plug. Uh, you know they controlled everything. If you want to make a long distance phone call, you are paying a dollar a minute.
0: And they fought losing Do you remember,
1: that hard.
0: My, my wife and I were joking about this the other day. Do you remember, you know, let's say you had family friends in the New York area and you were going to be in New York. But maybe you're only going to be there for a few days. Maybe it was a business trip. You didn't have time to go see the friends. But your mom or dad would say, oh, well, while you're there, you need to call aunt so-and-so. Right. <laughs> right. Because you're close. It's a, because it's if a we call, call them from here, it's a billion dollars a <laughs> yes,
1: we used to. When I was very young, we used to. My dad used to travel internationally, and uh, we used to arrange the time, like uh, when we could have a call with him from London. You know, it wasn't just that it cost of, you know probably the equivalent of a thousand dollars today, but you had to pre-schedule when you were going to have the call. And that's so foreign to the way people think today. Thank goodness. And you have to ask yourself, like, if AT and T still controlled all the long distance. We're, you know, and, 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 and data lines were unbelievably expensive. Do you think we'd have an internet? Do you really think that we'd have smartphones? You know, there's a lot of history where AT&T paid McKinsey to determine how many smartphones or how many cell phones and their numbers are off by five or six orders of magnitude. Um, what happens when you unleash these technologies onto innovators, entrepreneurs, and other crazy thinkers, some of them are going to invent the future. And we're just at that stage now. And that is who I wrote my book for.
0: Yes. And so there's a, there's a convergence of these things. I mean, one of them you talked about, I could buy your energy, right? And so many people here in Silicon Valley have talked about how, what's going to happen to your point around an eBay for an exchange of, of, um, energies. We're going to, we're going to do all this on the blockchain. And this is going to be, you know, web three technologies will enable ways of trading energy, Uh, monitoring energy, consuming energy, optimizing usage of energy in ways that could never be imagined. simple technologies, we we had a gal on with my brother from another mother, uh, Kevin Maney, whose company started in in Africa, and they just built a sensing device to put on the plug of an industrial machine um, so that it could monitor its usage. And so that it wasn't doing what it needed to do you could build some intelligence and turn the thing off. And just that for many small manufacturers in Africa was a 30 to 40% unlock because they didn't need to pay for energy they weren't using. And that's just a very simple technology. And so, so the point being, this convergence of the cloud, mobile computing, Web3 with energy, it seems like it's blurring into creating whole new categories of innovation.
1: The innovation is, in my view, going to be staggering and the amount of money that's moving around again something most people just haven't stopped and done that's that was the fun part of my book is I took numbers that no one disputed and I just looked at them in different ways and fun fun stat if you go back and you look at all the venture capital investments across the world for the last 25 years it's uh in total venture capitalists have invested in about a trillion dollars and that's from, you know eBay and and Facebook and Tesla if you look at the most conservative estimate of investments in clean energy going forward for the next 25 years, it's $20 trillion. And smart people like McKinsey will say that to really transition to clean energy, we're talking about 9 or $10 trillion a year. So you just got to stop and think about that. We're already spending more every year in the transition to clean energy then all venture capital invested for the last 25 years we're doing that each year and it's accelerating now a lot of those investments are boring they're going to return you know market interest rates like a savings like a savings account but with all that moving money moving around the opportunity for innovation to, to to make to add some smarts along the way that's where entrepreneurs and innovators can have a field day
0: yes and it seems to me, and I was reflecting on this as I was reading your book, you know, quite some time ago, Al Gore got involved with Kleiner Perkins and the folks at Kleiner Perkins, as I'm sure you well know, I mean, you were a VC, you were at Greylock, were you not? I was. One yeah. of the most legendary firms. And, um, and they went down this green energy path pretty hard in the early 2000s. Yes, they did. And this may be an exaggeration. I, I mean, I watched it, but I'm not an expert, but- uh, the returns weren't there. And, you know, back in the 90s, Kleiner was Kleiner. And I don't mean this pejoratively. I respect what they did tremendously. But Kleiner Perkins is not Kleiner Perkins anymore. And some people, again, I don't know it enough to know all the ins and outs. Some people say it was at least in part they're jumping full on into the green world um, that did that. And just one other point on that. I remember... Um, probably around the 2.15 time having lunch with um, one of the most successful venture capitalists in history, who's not at KP and asking him about this. And he said, here's why I think they failed the VC funds in our world are 10 years. Sometimes they get extended to 12 or 15, but, but the thinking being that within 10 years or so, if you made a success, successful investment in a successful tech entrepreneur You are going to have an outcome. You're going to have a sale that's going to occur. There's going to be an IPO value is going to get created. And so the life of a fund was roughly triangulated to how long it took for uh, a successful company to create and dominate a category and as a result, create massive value. And his uh, thinking to me at the time was the problem with green investments and thus the challenge KP faced was the time horizons are probably much longer. They're maybe 20 years, 25 years, and they took a tech venture capital mindset. And that was the case in the early 2000s. If you believe that, I'm just saying that, I don't know that I 100% believe it, but I think it's an interesting insight from an incredibly smart guy who I won't name. Um, well, as I'm reading your book, what I'm, what I'm thinking to myself is, oh, it seems like part of what's going on in terms of entrepreneurial new category creation, new technology creation is the cycle times to create new energy um, technologies and categories are coming down. And the ability to create incredibly successful companies is getting shorter as a result. This democratization, this decentralization is, is akin to what's happened in computing. And so just like in computing, you have Metcalfe's law, Moore's law. And all of that means that it's shrinking the amount of time it takes to create a successful startup that has a, a big outcome and a big impact. And so it's now more conducive for a guy like you with an entrepreneur and a venture background to come into this with a what I would call a more tech sort of uh, lens to uh, entrepreneurship in, in green energy. Does any of that make any sense? I agree with
1: the the second half
0: of everything you said. It is
1: getting cheaper. Uh the cycle times are getting faster. Uh but I disagree with your brilliant friend. I don't think that had anything to do with why uh the I call it the clean apocalypse in the book. And I interviewed dozens of VCs by the way and when I started writing the book they all said I was out of my mind. There'd never be a venture capital market because everyone learned as MIT said in one of their famous headline articles, you know, the venture capital is not the right way to finance clean energy it was just it was wrong then it's wrong now listen what happened was two things that were pretty profound or three things that everybody misses was you think about all these companies trying to create new ways to do cheap solar solyndra being the most famous of which you know solyndra actually shipped their product it actually worked according to their targets and they were i believe generating 100 million plus revenue with this thing problem was it's stupid boring silicon solar cells just get it Kept getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So, Solyndra innovated this brand new way to do it. Spent fortune building factories and novel technologies. And stupid old silicon solar just became dirt cheap. And 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 the other half of the the clean apocalypse was that people are trying to find ways to 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 produce new hydrocarbon energy or replacements for the old style gasoline. And well, if you go back and look at your energy history from 2005 through 2010, that's when fracking worked. So natural gas—I mean, natural gas and and oil were incredibly expensive. The United States was become a complete importer. We were a shrinking part of the hydrocarbon production in the world. Today, we are the largest producer of hydrocarbons in the planet. Again, we're larger than Saudi Arabia, and uh, it's because of fracking. And so, all these people trying to create alternatives to hydrocarbon energies they were also wrong because fracking made hydrocarbon energy fraction of the price when they started so those and then of course there's the whole 2008 financial collapse so those three reasons of why the clean apocalypse happened um i give venture capitalists a lot more credit than your friend did they knew they were getting into capital intensive businesses they weren't dummies they knew this was going to take a long time they got it but they couldn't account for the price of hydrocarbons going down by 75 80 percent. they couldn't account for the price of stupid silicon solar um which was originally made in the same way they made microchips. That going down the factor of twenty times, they didn't see any of that coming.
0: Yes, and, and to your point, you know, uh, maybe against a little bit what my very smart friend uh, said. Um, if not entrepreneurs, who? So you know, what do we know? Most new innovation and category creation that comes from the S and P five hundred doesn't go anywhere. And there's a bunch of reasons I think we all understand about that. I thought about
1: that. That's a good point.
0: Well, pick your favorite S&P 500 company. And uh, how many new categories have they designed and dominated in the last decade? Spot on. And we believe around here, uh, as a result of the shift from a native analog world to a native digital world, which most uh, CEOs of uh, the average age of a CEO in the S&P 500, I believe, is 58 which makes them absolutely a native di- uh, analog native digitals roughly are at about 35. And the difference between the two is where does your primary people hear this as ageist. Oh, you're being ageist. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a native analog. So go fuck yourself. Second of all, <laughs> it's actually not about age. It's about where is your primary experience of life. And for you and I, you and I have had rich digital careers. It's our whole careers. Um, and yet we would rather sit down and have a beer together than do this. This is great. I love this. It's fantastic. And, and, and you don't have to travel and I don't have to travel and we can just do it. So I'm, I, I love this a fucking long live Zoom. I think somebody should give Eric Yuan the fucking presidential medal of freedom. Um, <laughs> and so, so, but the innovation comes from startups. Yeah, it does. And so if not entrepreneurs, who? And one of the startups that I respect and admire the most um, I've done some work with and have gotten to know are the guys at, at Lomi. And you've probably seen their ads. Mm-hmm. Do you have a Lomi by chance?
1: I don't, but I've been thinking about it.
0: It's time to buy a Lomi. Um, and, 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 and one of the insights that Matt and Brad had, the founders, and they say it in one of their videos, is the government is actually not going to fix this problem. They're not, you know, in the case of food waste. Um, If we got rid of food waste in the United States, it would be the equivalent of turning off 40 or 50 coal plants. And food waste is more toxic than a lot of other forms of waste. And in California, uh, restaurants and bars, because they throw out approximately 50 percent of their food, they actually have to pay for three types of garbage removal. Garbage. Garbage. Recycle and they have to sort their food garbage because it's so fucking toxic, and a third company or a third process has to deal with the food. So, Matt and Brad say, uh, what every legendary entrepreneur says, to quote the Big Lebowski this aggression will not stand, man. <laughs> and they say, what if we take everything we know about um, material science and, and engineering and so forth and create a home device that can rapidly compost food? Well, that's what Lomi is. You, press a, you fill the thing up with your food waste. You press a button and three to four hours later you get some of the most nutrient dirt, rich dirt on the planet instead of toxic waste. And you just look at that and go, when I met these guys, I was like, fuck, you guys are so legendary. It's a $500 device that makes that kind of a difference. And so, you know, I don't know your space the way you do, but... I assume there's a lot of Matt's and Brad's. They started this company yes. with a fucking Kickstarter and now venture yes. capitalists are throwing money at them. And if I told you what their numbers are, you, your mind would explode. They're One of the fastest growing new home appliances in the history of home appliances. And wow. so if a, if a couple of smart guys can do a Kickstarter with a brilliant vision to do this, I would imagine that level of entrepreneurial innovation and category design is happening throughout the energy world
1: everywhere at every level you know in in the book i talk about the five orders of innovation because in energy it's more complicated to innovate than say a software enterprise software that's a well known path but energy it's you know any kind of hard tech is more complicated so i laid out this model and everywhere along the five orders from making something like a new solar cell up to creating a trading platform for electricity in australia right They all have different business models, but every one of them builds on the other. And collectively, you're moving this enormous trillion-dollar engine forward and entrepreneurs complaining where they like. You know, I just interviewed Don L. Baird, who's the CEO of this incredible company called Block Power. And they're basically going all over cities in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure, he told me a couple of them, I'm not sure they're public yet, but major, major cities. And they're basically upgrading Every one of the homes and buildings, particularly in the low-income areas, and they're taking away nasty old oil heaters and putting in electric heaters, and they can slash the electricity bills, they can increase their resilience, and they can make a fortune for their investors. And This is just one dude and an amazing team, and there's thousands of others. That's what's so fun about my podcast is I get to talk to these, these people who are just reinventing everything, just knocking our assumptions on their back. Uh saying you know, screw you the history and convention and uh the way we've done things for a hundred years we're gonna do it a brand new way and and it's lifting the game for the future of the planet, the health of the planet uh it's gonna create trillions and trillions of dollars worth of uh, value for shareholders uh I mean just look at tesla right they're they're reinventing everything and their shareholders are benefiting they're they're kind of crazy right we could we could certainly pick fights with some of the things they do, but generally electric dude electric cars man they're everywhere the
0: think about look. And I don't agree with everything Elon says, okay? He's yeah. a wackadoo. But who the fuck do you think creates different futures? People who are nuts. That's who. Yeah. He's nuts. That's what he's doing. His, everything he does is nuts. And so you can't expect him to be exponentially breakthrough, creating radical different futures. And for him, for, for him to behave like the CEO of GE on Twitter. You know who else was a wackadoodle nut job was Thomas Edison. Of course. Benjamin right? Franklin. He's, he's, yeah. These,
1: these guys were reviled by their critics and they did crazy things that, you know, that hurt them. And people at the time were like, why are you doing this? Because if you think differently, like this old Apple commercials, right? You know, the the, the crazy ones, they are the ones that changed the, the ones. world.
0: You've got to be fucking crazy.
1: And for the first time in energy history, those people can participate. But the crazies they are don't. on it.
0: And so, so, you know, in chapter six, it's incredibly well laid out here. Um, You talk about these massive, you call them disruptions. Around here, we would call them new category creation or category potential. And so if I'm an entrepreneur, if I'm a venture capitalist, I'm sitting here going, hmm, maybe all the naysayers are stupid and maybe Bill's on to something. And you're saying there's multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar opportunities. I mean, Apple's a $2.2 trillion company. We're going to have a $5 trillion company here soon there will be trillions and trillions of dollars of new value created that will make a giant difference to humanity here. Yes. Yes. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm listening to bill and I'm a, I'm a venture capital partner, or even I'm wanting to do a little bit of angel investing, or even I'm getting on Kickstarter and I want to throw in 50 bucks. What, what is the lens that you have that you would like me to have to be successful as either an entrepreneur an executive or investor?
1: That is the trillion dollar question. And, uh, if you get through the book to the final chapter i actually lay out uh, 50 ideas that are all multiple billion dollars that are all are are all emerging by the way my best ideas are not there but these are all very good ideas and you think about simple let me give you some of my favorite examples right um, today when you put solar on your roof you know you're taking a perfectly fine roof you're drilling holes in it and you're putting up solar and it, it's the second group of people that have been climbing on your roof It's actually, in the future, already now, in some companies that are pioneering it, the roof is your solar panels. You just put it up once when the house is being built or you're replacing the tile, the shingles, and it's one effort, one team, and then your roof is solar. And by the way, Translation,
0: the tiles are solar.
1: Yes. We're not putting solar solar. on
0: shingles or tiles. Your roof is your solar panel.
1: Yes. That's a simple idea. But that fundamentally changes the economics of roofing uh the labor force for roofing it creates a ton of jobs your roof is probably going to last twice as long as a traditional american shingled roof will last i mean the you know so tesla's been trying to get this right for a while and it's easy to poo-poo it because if tesla can't even get their solar shingles right who could but this is just a matter of you know listen we used to run used to use um blackberries right We, we don't revile blackberry because they they aren't the iphone they were part of the path to getting to where we are today and these early Tesla solar t- shingles
0: are, are pioneering. And Listen, we, we can buy a watch today that tells us more about our health than thousands of dollars of tests did yeah. five years ago. My doctor said her, her most important medical device is her iPhone.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> so that's one big idea. And it could be your windows. It could be your driveway. It could be your walls. And again, naysayers will say, well, the economics of solar windows, well, I have talked to companies and I'm pretty science-minded, I'm telling you the economics of solar windows and solar walls will make sense.
0: And you said solar driveways. Are we gonna have solar panels that we can drive on?
1: No, but you're gonna have a driveway that happens to generate electricity via solar. And when if you live in a cold climate, it's gonna melt, melt the snow in the winter so you don't have to plow it. That saving, that alone will pay for itself. These simple innovations are coming, they're obvious, it's difficult to dispute them. Those are just some examples. Um, you know, right now in the United States, it is illegal for you and I to sell electricity to each other. It's deeply illegal. Such bullshit. Uh, uh, but in other countries like Australia, this is a booming market. Uh, one of my favorite stories is a company called Power Ledger, and they are um, creating markets for people to trade electricity with each other. And one of the favorite examples is there's a a, a brewery that makes beer and they get power from the community to power the brewing process and no money changes hands, but your electricity is contributing. So when you walk in, there's a case ready for you because you can, you, um, you powered it with your
0: solar panels. Now this it- is a new kind of category innovation I can get behind because I live in a town where there's a law that says every six months, a new microbrewery must open.
1: <laughs> you see, and my, you my favorite, and I
0: I like to, patronize all of them and there's a couple of course that that i really love and uh when i show up i normally buy three or four cases at a time because we can't run out of uncle dave's ipa around here and uh i would love to exchange my excess electricity for a couple of cases of uncle dave's
1: <laughs> and so they don't call it uh they don't call it peer-to-peer electricity trade and they call it peer-to-beer didn't make it up didn't make it up that's great
0: and so so let me just let me just push on this for a second so I remember, uh, you know, uh, my my buddy, the legendary VC, Mike Maples, uh, early investor in Twitter. Uh, he, threw his partner, Ann Mirko, early investor in Lyft and so forth and so on. And I remember during that sort of era, Bill, uh, we got together and he said, you know, I, I think about 50% of the entrepreneurs who come into our office now say, look, they, they start their pitch off with, I'm not sure this is legal, but... <laughs> And of course, Uber and Lyft were absolutely not legal. And they just essentially destroyed the taxi industry by saying, look, we're not participating. We don't give a fuck what the laws say. We're doing it. Go fuck yourself. And when London tried to stop them and all these cities, cities tried to stop them, it didn't work because the category was so powerful. Once people see it, they can't unsee it and they got to have it. And so they forced law changes. And so on this energy trading thing, if a group of us just got together and said, hey, look, go fuck yourself. I'm going to go to discretion brewery who makes uncle Dave's and I'm going to make this deal with them. And that's what we're going to do. And Bob's your uncle. And you, you don't even arrest uh, people for breaking and entering in California. Crime is legal in California and the legalization of crime in California continues. It, 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 try to get arrested in California. No, I'm serious. If somebody breaks into your I'll, house I'll to you. in California, they are not going to be arrested. And if they are arrested by some miracle, they're not going to jail so they're going to put me in jail for trading electricity with my favorite local brewery. And so I guess my question is, are we starting to see entrepreneurs like the ones that Mike talked about back in those timeframes who on topics like this and maybe others are just saying, go fuck yourself, put me in jail, who cares? The difference here, not to be a downer,
1: is that you were talking about the an industry, the electric utility industry, which I've, and I cite sources, is the largest percentage of lobbying as a percentage of revenue of any industry in the United States. Uh, Their political power is unbelievable. And so you don't have to worry about going to jail if you do it, but you do have to worry about a line of lawyers knocking on your door, suing you for everything you're worth. And that is the few people that have tried it. That's what I have heard happens. So they will absolutely come after you. And it's actually a bit more complicated than that. And in defense of these utilities, because I've met a, dozens of top utility executives into a person. I thought they were fine people and their interests were aligned with mine. They just had a very different view of how to get there. But, you know, they will say that you will wreck the grid if you don't use them. They'll make an argument called cost shifting. It's a little wonky, but it's actually not. So basically what they say, and California is ground zero for this, by the way, your public utility commissioners are the, bane of the entire electricity world is they they go pendulum back and forth between hey the future's coming to no let's act like we're in the dinosaur age again and they go back and forth in my opinion but what they basically are they've been thinking recently uh is that well listen if um christopher and bill and a couple of us get together and we start trading electricity with each other uh, because we're wealthy and we could afford solar panels on our roof um we're not going to be buying electricity from pg and any pg any anymore but here's the problem that PG&E will tell you. They'll say, well, we still have to maintain the grid for everybody and presumably to their houses as well because maybe their solar panels break and they want to have electricity. We have to maintain all that. So our costs remain fixed, but our revenues go down because Bill and Christopher are generating their own electricity. And so what they why, say – Why do
0: Bill and Christopher give a fuck?
1: Because – well, we don't, but I we, mean we I, do I buy all my
0: produce. No, but we do. Let me, let me
1: finish. Let me finish okay. because what happens, they're going to say, is that the price of electricity, the price in order to continue to pay for the grid, we have to get the other customers to pay for those costs because the contribution Chris and, and, and Christopher and Bill have is no longer going into the coffers. What that does, they love to point out, is that the lowest income people in our community who can barely afford to pay for the electricity they have now, their electricity bills are going to go up. And the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they've all had op-eds. Basically, wealthy solar owners are going to make low-income families go bankrupt because their electricity bills are going up so much, this cost-shifting argument. It's a baloney argument. It's a bullshit argument. But a lot of people way smarter than you and me believe it to be true. And um, the California Public Utility Commission is acting on it now.
0: But if that was true, if if that was true, we never – look, the Luddites are always wrong. And here's my uh, simple argument. Best I can tell, the wheel was the most important new innovation ever. And uh, back in the day when the wheel was created, and by the way, it took 300 years before it got used for transportation. So all the people who think that you build a legendary product and everything works, not so much. It was created for pottery. And 300 years later, an entrepreneur opened a bottle of whiskey and a bag of Mary Jane and looked at this thing and went, hmm, what if we tilted it 180 and used it for transportation? <laughs> well, then you know what happened? The Luddites said, oh, yeah, but there are hundreds of thousands of people who make their living carrying pails back and forth to the lake. Absolutely. And now we're oh we're gosh. not we're only going to need half those people because we're going to be able to do it in wheelbarrows. And what are those people going to do? We're going to have to have a UBI. Well. I mean, this stupidity has been going on that fucking long, right? And the reality is. I love it. You look at computing, same thing. Oh, well, if rich people buy computers, poor people aren't going to have them. Well, yeah, but if rich people buy computers and they lower the cost of computing over time, they will have them. Oh, and by the way, we still have a radical digital divide in this country, and some of us give a fuck about that, and some of us contribute time and money to try to solve that problem. So. If we want to create a situation where we create a fund or there's a lot of innovative things industry could do, entrepreneurs could do to help fund low, uh, lower income communities in this regard. And actually, um, they could uh, uh, leap forward by being behind, if you will. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, go fuck yourself with that argument as far as I'm concerned.
1: Well, it's carrying a lot of weight and it's become partisan and political to some degree around that argument. And it is currently the single largest thing slowing down the adoption of uh, local energy because the utilities have convinced a lot of well-meaning people to slow it down.
0: There are people who are going to participate in this conversation. There are people who are going to try to do things in government. There are people who are going to try and push this boulder up a big hill. And then there's people like the founders of Lyft who just say, go fuck yourself. We're doing it. And so th- I guess that's my question. And and the native digitals are all over this stuff. And so, you know, does a startup need to raise 50% more capital to have a legal department to deal with PG and evil? Okay, maybe they do. Or maybe a bunch of high-powered VCs with, you know, multi-zillion dollar funds get together and create the the legal defense fund to protect these startups from these assholes. I mean, there's ways to deal with this stuff. And last time I checked, the court of public opinion is a very strong one, and uh, with all due modesty, I have a black belt in category design and marketing. And if you wanted me to create a marketing campaign to make life really hell for pg and I could absolutely do that. And so there's a lot of ways to get to this thing. And so I guess my point is, and look, I'm radically biased towards technology, towards entrepreneurship and category creation and design. But I don't think the government's going to do this. I don't think PG&E is going to do this. I think it's going to be entrepreneurs, just like the entrepreneurs who uh created the wheel
1: i think your point about uber was the analog here right you know uber went up against uh, essentially a regulated monopoly at the city level and uh initially the taxi lobby was incredibly successful at telling cities but you know what i used uber i've been in taxis i'll take an uber almost every single time it's better it's cleaner the cars are nicer you know you don't have to worry about giving directions right it's a better solution at a better price and ultimately the court of public opinion aka voters won out at the city level and i will argue that the exact same thing is just starting to happen hey listen if you if you believe if you if you subscribe to the argument that political power is going to win in the electricity game look no further than the state of florida right so the story I've heard and I've read is that the local utility – it's a big, big, powerful utility. They wrote a piece of legislation and sent it over to some Florida legislators and the Republican Party and said, hey, here's what this law should look like, and it's going to be called Freedom of Solar. But actually, it, uh, it actually makes solar nearly impossible for homeowners to do. And and so the Florida legislator voted – hundred along party lines, 100 percent, Republicans all voted for it. Um, it would have shut down in every practical way. There would be no more rooftop solar in in Florida. And in the shot heard around the world about, I don't know, earlier this year, three, four months ago, Governor DeSantis vetoed it. And when he was asked why he vetoed it, I'm sure the truth is more nuanced, but he said 85% of Floridians want rooftop solar if they can afford it. You know, it, it creates resilience. If people want to do this in their homes, they should have the right to do it. It's not ours, the government's way to say a very classic Republican answer. But that was such a big change. And the irony of all the states in the country that's moving towards making solar too expensive for consumers—it's your state in California. I mean, talking about a total switch. Republican Florida is opening wide for rooftop solar, and you know, con- and, and and a progressive liberal California is come very close. And the governor overrode it, becoming very close to essentially making rooftop solar too expensive for normal people to have. This is how screwed up the world is around this stuff. Um, The good news is 100% of both cases, Florida and California, Puerto Rico after Maria, people spoke, said, this is cheaper. It's more resilient. I want it. I know it works. My neighbor has it. She loves it. Get out of my way, politicians. Get out of my way, lobbyists. This is what I want. And by the way, they're making this much noise mostly because they want to be clean environmentalists. Imagine how much louder that vote and that is, is going to be when they all realize it's
0: half the price. Well, and this is the other thing I loved about your book because, unfortunately, and look, I'm a greenie. I love the world. I try to be a good person. Uh, <laughs> I've donated shit tons of money to restore. Um, um, forest land in Costa Rica. And uh, like, I, I, I'm right with you. I want to save the planet. I'm not a climate that I, far from it, but you make a business argument in this book. And one of the parts of the business argument is when there are exponential technology breakthroughs that lead to new categories of the way we live, work and play, human beings aren't idiots. And one of the biggest misnomers in business and marketing is nobody likes change. Nobody likes change. <laughs> Bullshit. We love change. If we understand it, and that is to say we understand what problem it solves and what value it creates, and so it doesn't matter Republican or Democrat, Republicans aren't stupid, Democrats aren't stupid. The people of Florida said, "Hey, wait a minute, this is cheaper, it's more cost effective it increases the value of my home from a resale perspective, et cetera, and you know et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I want to feel like a good person who's doing a good thing for the the planet, so fuck you, whoever says no." I may be a Republican, but I'm not stupid. And DeSantis yields to his his people uh, as he should because he wants to be uh, uh, elected governor again and probably president. And so this is exactly my point, which is all the lawyers and all the dusty fuck executives at all the dusty fuck energy companies can't stop the native digitals primarily. And some of us native analogs who look at this and go, wait a minute. This is a radically different way with radically different value, radically cheaper, um, that is radically better for our world. And if if, if you could tell me all you want about your regulations and your laws, well, fuck you. I'm going to I'm going to elect people who will change those. Yes,
1: yes, yes. And and most of the energy historically has been around fear of climate change, which is a pretty reasonable thing. But it's become very uh, politicized. I love to remind people, by the way, that back in the 2008 Republican National Convention platform, they acknowledged climate change and said, this is something we got to put business towards. We've got to address it. And then in the years since, they kind of did a 180. But but this is no longer about the environment.
0: Well, and by the way, I think if Republicans were smart, they would lead on this issue because of what you lay out in your book. This is – I forget the exact word you say, but something like the greatest – uh, innovation opportunity of our lifetime, something along those lines. Yes, Bill,
1: it's the biggest business opportunity in the history of humanity, no close second. And Republicans love this because this is all about take. You know, let me do in my own home. Let me power myself. Well, I don't want to be tethered to a giant corporation, and I don't want to pay them more money than I should, so they can be comfortably profitable. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to generate my own power. I want to be able to yes. be resilient because the grid's going down more and more often. And this is this is a this was highly lined up with the values that Republicans have. And I think they should lead on it.
0: Right. And so if Republicans said we are going to create an economic and political environment in the United States for radical category creation and innovation around these areas and empower entrepreneurs and empower large corporations to get, you know, on uh, with the program, I think they could win. And the challenge I think Democrats have is, you know, they overly governmentize this. And I'm not one of these people who's anti-government, not at all. And I'm not one of these people who do, who says there isn't a role for government. There is a role for government. The government created the fucking Internet. So let's not be stupid. You know, NASA's contribution, the, you know, the contribution of science and innovation by the U.S. government is, is is hard to measure, if if at all. So I'm a big supporter of the right kind of government. However, Democrats have a history of sort of you know over governmentizing and this is why by the way I like the dynamic tension between both sides one's way over here one's way over there steel sharp and steel let's argue about it and there's an answer in the, in between which is the right level of uh of government investment the right level of regulation and the right level of entrepreneurship innovation new yep. investment new category design
1: I I could not agree with you more uh more I I think that the, there is a big role for government, and I actually was pleasantly surprised being a generally lighter government is better guy uh, when I uncovered the degree to which the government, uh, Department of Energy, has been not only a catalyst but a driver of nearly all the energy innovation that that takes place in the world. It's a sad thing that so much of the innovations that you, the U.S. has created are now leading to companies in other countries uh, creating great businesses around it because we, we don't always align – our intentions in the us government across different groups but i think the government has a much bigger role to play than people think
0: i've known many innovators in government who are very good people who are trying to do incredible things and they get incredibly frustrated when um the bureaucracy and the stupidity gets in the way and god bless them for going in there with their with their swords and and try to whack that weed back (laughs) and
1: it's working i mean listen the stuff the department of energy is doing is is inspiring and i tell entrepreneurs don't fall into the old dogma that if I have, if I need some capital for this business, I should go talk to venture capitalists first. I say, go take a look at what the department of energy is doing. And I don't know if you know this stuff, Christopher, but they literally give away hundreds. I'm not talking about loans. I'm not talking about equity. They give away the money. It's not easy to get, but they give it away. You know, I have, I have a startup that one that was got over a million dollars from the Department of Energy in their first ever prize program. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, when we won the money and we're doing a, a new kind of solar cell and uh, uh, we got the money and they, the guy pulled me aside, one of the people from the DOE and he said, please don't buy a boat. And I was like, what? And he goes, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're trying, this is years ago. He said, we're trying to really help entrepreneurs. So we wanna remove all the bureaucracy of getting money from us. so." You probably haven't thought about it, but you could literally go buy a boat with the money we gave you, and it, we, we put 100 percent of it, and then a ton of our own money into this innovation. And we're still pushing it, but this is there were no strings attached. We got a check, we got a money wired to us, and we never heard from them again about. I mean, they asked us how we were doing, but there was no accountability, no contracts, no follow-ups, no audit teams. I mean, there the government is is so lined up. Whether it was under Trump or under Biden, this is all the, this is all true. Uh, the Department of Energy deep. Deep below the politicians, they're doing this stuff, and it's a great story. And for anyone that wants to get an energy, um, take a look at the Department of Energy, the National Science Foundation, look at your states. Um, there is so much great stuff there. You don't have to rely just on venture capitalists to get this thing funded.
0: Yes, and I would also imagine you know way more about this than I do, but many of our legendary learning institutions and universities and such – uh, are are in this game as well. Oh, and yeah. we know in the tech industry that Silicon Valley wouldn't be Silicon Valley without Stanford and Cal and, and some of the other wonderful schools and, and that, that there's an ecosystem around government, education, entrepreneurial mindset, access to capital, access to technology. And when that magical flywheel gets rolling where the government is helping or at least not fucking hurting and and and, and you have that kind of an ecosystem that gets built, it unleashes exponential different futures.
1: The confluence of all these things is unprecedented because unlike enterprise software or social networks or a app on your phone for walking your dog, right? This does require science. This energy transition, it does require capital. Uh, Those are things that the government and universities are particularly good at doing or enabling. And so the winners in this next phase are going to be those people that not only understand how to make a business, um, but understand how to navigate these different halls of power and influence together. And I think this brings more people to the table, honestly, rather than fewer. But uh, if, you're a, if you're a person who's inclined toward advocacy, there might just be a startup dying to hire you. It's a totally new world. Up is down, yes. left is right, right is left. Yes. Uh, and, and for me, as a person who spent my entire career watching these disruptions or playing a tiny part in them, this is the biggest disruption I will see in my lifetime, maybe in the history of humanity. This is gonna be so fun. And you know what? The prize is that this planet's gonna be in way better shape. Uh, this is the first time that people in their 20s and 30s can actually do something rather than vote and protest to make the world a better place for their children and grandchildren. I
0: have a 30-year-old nephew who's working in a company that's using advanced technology and a breakthrough in farming. This is what this generation wants to do.
1: And it it will last for you. This is a pivotal time. The the impact your nephew is going to make is going to change the future. Yes. And uh, I I think for all the cool things about Facebook, I don't know if anyone's going to know or care what Facebook was in 50 years. Maybe not. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that the company that perfects indoor vertical farming Uh, Even if their name is forgotten, the world's different. The company that makes a better battery, who knows the name of the scientist or the CEO or the VC that made it real, but that better battery that's going to make your EV cost $10,000 cheaper than a gas car, that's going to change the world. And that's the point where we are right now, and the chance for people to make a difference personally, no matter what their skill, there's nothing ever been like this. And that's why I wrote the book. Uh, I wanted people to get a sense of excitement like I have that jump in man this is the time
0: well and uh i don't know if you had a chance to listen to my incredible conversation with the legendary xander rose from the long now foundation they're the group that's building the year old clock and he he asked me a question that literally stopped me in my tracks and has been ricketing ratcheting around my brain ever since which is are we being good ancestors i i listened to
1: it uh i thought that was a brilliant question and the answer is not so much, but getting warmer. Yeah. That's what I'd like to think.
0: Now, before I let you go, Bill, uh, you and I have a history that uh, you might not be aware of. I'm dying to hear this. You were the chief executive officer of IXL back in the 90s, were you not? I was. I was the founding chief marketing officer of Scient. No way. Yes way.
1: Oh my goodness. You know, I've heard your name, in the uh in the podcast world and the book world but it seems so familiar to me i don't know if we ever met but there's a i good don't think we, we met. might have we
0: might have wow. it was a lot of whiskeys ago for me uh and and i left long before all those companies started merging as the dot bomb situation was getting yep. worse and worse so i i left well I left i got fired i could tell you that story if you like it's congratulations yeah. But-, hey, but for
1: people that don't know, this Scient was the, and I can say this. On my IXL, we were one of the largest companies in this space, but Scient, was. They were the uh, the the ninjas. They were the top of the top, the best, the smartest. They were smaller, but the things that they know they would do stuff on the web that no one else could do. And uh, so, knowing that that was you, I tip my hat to you, sir. Uh, you were hardcore competition, and your your uh, your predecessors were hard. Uh, you know, hardcore competition, but with Nothing but respect.
0: And well thank that was a you. fun time. That and a respect fun time. back. It was a very fun time. There was a group of companies who all clustered doing those things. We were, I think in some ways unsung heroes of the internet age because we we helped so many companies either start startups and and, and, and become dot-coms as we called them back then, or so many uh, major corporations build their first websites and do digital marketing and start to do How's commerce us? and all of those things back when doing that was an incredibly hard thing to do. It was a very exciting time. And, and, um, and science was an amazing place. Bob, Howe, uh, our CEO <laughs> gets all the credit in the world. We created a legendary culture and uh, you know, it's interesting. It's so many years ago. I mean, I left Scient in uh, 2001 and uh, the science network is vibrant and alive, uh, and you know. Um, so anyway, those days were great days, and it was fun competing it's so with you. Funny,
1: I, it's hard to describe to people today. But we, we, my company, IXL, we built the first websites for General Electric, for Virgin, uh, for Home Depot, for a, a company that no one knows called Bell South. Right, is a pre- predecessor to a- AT and so we built these. We sat down with their boards and we had conversations about what does the internet mean, and uh, we helped them chart the strategies, early strategies. I'm sure there, you know, there's no no remnants of them left. But what a privilege to be around the table with these iconic companies and these startups that changed the world and be their their partner, their trusted partner. So there was about ten companies in the space uh, of which Scient and IXL were two at the very top. And uh, I, I like you, uh, Christopher, the people that. Um, that help lead IXL. Uh, we have remained fast, fast friends. In fact, I recently joined a venture capital fund uh, that I'm super thrilled about. It's a brand new model for venture capital, and uh, the the founder was one of my friends, uh, colleagues from IXL, and our CFO is from IXL. And uh, just a, the network is playing out over the years. Uh, and I think the people that are building the new industries today, energy and, and many other industries, they're going to have these same ex- when they look back in 20 years, say, man, what a fantastic time. To be part of that tribe.
0: Yes. And one of the things I, you know, now that I'm in my Obi-Wan stage and not the Luke Skywalker (laughs) stage anymore, uh, one of the things I like to share with the Lucy and Luke Skywalkers in my life is uh, there's this great Counting Crows lyric from a song called uh, A Long December. And the lyric is, I try to hold on to these moments as they pass. Because when you're a young person and you, you're at the bleeding edge of, of the most important thing happening in business and to your point you're working with some of the greatest business leaders in, in the world on that, um, that's heady shit. And it's shit you're going to remember forever and you're going to spend the money and, you know, the cars are nice and whatever. But it, what you really have are the memories and the relationships with those legendary people. And, and so try to hold on to those moments as they pass. That is well said, sir. Well said. All right, Bill, anything else before we wrap?
1: I will just thank you again for having me. This has been an absolutely amazing, killer conversation. You're very good at this. You should consider doing it uh, professionally.
0: Uh, I'm trying to come out of my (laughs) shell. I'm a little introverted.
1: (laughs) This was fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for the great dialogue. I can't wait to to listen to it. And and I'm gonna share it with everybody man
0: thank you so much you're welcome back anytime i really want to thank you for writing this extraordinary book i I mean it's incredibly well researched and it's clearly a labor of love and um and something the world needs to pay attention to thank you bill stay legendary brother
1: (laughs) back at you thanks a bunch
0: well there he is the legendary bill no he's the number one uh best-selling author of a fantastic book i dove deep into it Uh, I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from this conversation with Bill. His book is called freeing energy, how innovators are using local scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from the outside in it's freeing energy. It's a fantastic read and I recommend it very much. All right. We would like to thank, thank you very much for investing part of your life with us. It means, uh, the world to all of us here at Follow Your Different, our friends at one life fully lived.org are the nonprofit helping people all around the country dream, plan and live their best lives. If you want to make a difference to some of the people who are most in need in our country, visit the number one lifefullylived.org today. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant who is a real person enabled by technology who's not anywhere near you, and won't get anywhere near you, (laughs) check out bottleneck.online. Don't forget to go to Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com, and check out the world's first smart home composter. My friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant flax milk. I love this stuff. I drink it every day day. Check out malibu milk with a Y dot com today. And my friends at Otranet will build you a legendary B2B website real fast check out n e t. today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes and this podcast is the sole property of the lockhead oddcast network and it does contain content known to the state of california to cause radically different thinking and new dialogue all rights do remain perturbed we are produced and edited by the goat jason DeFilippo, and jason who i consider a brother from another mother has a brand new red hot podcast Called Boot Up with Jason. Uh, get all your tech news in 10 minutes or less. It's fantastic. Jason does a great job of curating the news with just a, uh, the right little sprinkle of snark in there. So uh, check out Boot Up with Jason wherever you get legendary podcasts. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. And when you go to Lockhead.com, don't forget to subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and & Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Don't forget Eddie Van Halen was right. Listen to KD Lang. And Ben Franklin reminds us energy and persistence conquer all things. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Eric Schurenberg, CEO of Stink, I mean, Inc. Magazine. Sorry, Eric, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please be safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.